This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of the solstice on December 21st and the important pivot in seasonal time that it represents, rest, dark, and dormancy in the Northern Hemisphere, and expansive growth in the Southern Hemisphere, this week we speak with farmer, horticulturalist, floral designer, activist, and daughter, Amber Tam. I talk a lot about the idea of gardening being one of the very human intersectional spaces in our world. And when I say that, I'm talking about the fact that it can transcend so many differences, how it can be part of the solution to so many of our challenges, and it can bring us together in so many ways. In my mind, it is one of the most important cultural literacies we can cultivate, like food music, art, literature, and love. Amber Tam is an astoundingly energetic and heartful woman working in all of these intersections through the lens of agriculture and horticulture and floriculture. Amber joined me from her home in Brooklyn earlier this year, and I cannot think of a better voice and energy to help us intentionally usher in this solstice season. Welcome, Amber. I am definitely overjoyed to be here. So this is a question that I often ask people to start their interviews with, and that is, describe for listeners what your relationship with plants looks like right now in your life, both personally and professionally, Amber. Personally, it looks like plants showing me whatever they need to show me. A great example is I just did a big harvest today for a food justice program that is a passion project of mine with Stone Barnes um, and Dan Barber for his kitchen farming project. And one of my happiest moments was being able to harvest, you know, a bed full of 40 cabbage heads and see all of the holes within the cabbage and not feel the pressure of can this sell, can this go, can this be in the world, but understanding that this is something that Mama Earth gave us and it's to feed us as humans, but also it's to feed aphids and we're sharing the cabbage. We're sharing it and not removing those eaten leaves to show the people and that we'll be receiving this food as donation that it's just as beautiful. So I think I, I think I've always just learned from plants by watching them as they are in less controlled environments. Professionally, it looks like production farming. It looks like, you know, doing wholesale orders on Mondays and Thursdays and a hundred bunches of kale, 150 pounds of salad greens, you know, with no greens harvester, just like doing it by hand, five pound crates and like hauling those across a rooftop. And then on Sundays working farmer's markets and then hauling that down, like putting it on a little trolley thing to go on the elevator, to throw it in the pants, unpack it at market. And just recognizing that these plants are going through a lot to get to the person who wants them. But I'm, I'm grateful to be a humble servant professionally, but I will say it has been a lot of, a lot of work. (laughs) A lot of work. And it seems 
that the the marriage of those two sides help carry yes. one another. I will say that this is the first time today, actually, so I'm so grateful to be speaking with you. Today was the first time that I was able to harvest autonomously because working with Dan Barber gave me the autonomy to grow the way in which it felt true to me. And that's by way of listening to the soil and the plants. But previous to having this experience that I had today, I did feel a little unbalanced being a production farmer or production gardener or market gardener in the sense of it doesn't always feel true to move at that speed. It doesn't always feel true to spray, to get rid of quote unquote pests, which are also just hungry beings. But I do respect the hustle, specifically the hustle of production farming. So yeah, they do create a very yin and yang, a black and white balance. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I think I feel confident in saying that we need them both. We need that um, spiritual and integral relationship to make it, um, to carry us through things like the production part, but that production part um, is what brings in a wider um, group of people and community of people so that they can then hopefully follow far enough to learn the the spiritual and integral part. I don't, I'm, I think, yes. I think I believe that. I think so. that. I would like to think that there wasn't, there was like, I, I would like to think there would be a world where we didn't need the production hustle part, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm there not sure is there a world is. that exists because what I tell people is there's no such thing as too many farmers. There's no such thing as too many farmers. (laughs) And we can get to a point where, you know, four farmers on four acres doesn't have to be accountable for 80 families. That'll be a beautiful moment when four farmers on four acres are accountable for 40 families. Because other families are trading with each other because they're growing their own food in their own gardens. So I do think that that's very feasible. As long as we honor the fact that we won't be able to grow everything. I also think that that's the strict divide between a gardener and a farmer. A farmer has less time to have that spiritual conversation. You know, like as a farmer, I have to harvest my first couple of things with intention and then I have to speed up to get through the day. As a gardener, I have a lot of time. I have a lot of autonomy to assess. What do I want to give to offering to the bugs? Do I want to try something different in this bed and try something different in that bed and see what plants respond to what and where? I don't have to grow everything in rows. I can grow things in circles. I can mix things in garden beds. There's just so much more flow and autonomy in gardening. And honestly, I'm grateful for gardeners welcoming welcoming my narrative into that realm and putting pressure on me to slow down, come out of production farming a little bit and to really feel the rewards of gardening. Well, and I think um, for me, what you just articulated right at the beginning of that response about there is a world in which production farming as we currently or I currently conceive it when I say that phrase, it does not have to exist that way. And that world is one in which we reframe and reconceive 
what are healthy limits and boundaries and expectations in our world as people and on this unbelievably abundant and beneficent planet. Um, and so now we are getting deep, Miss Amber Jam, into what you what you bring to this world. So before we go there, I want to I want to get us to step back just a little bit and have you share with listeners a little bit about where you were born and raised and maybe the people and the places and the plants who raised you and grew you along into a person for whom this would even be like a point of conversation and dialogue and value. I would be happy to. I also am often so quickly to get so deep and I always miss introductions anytime I do panels, podcasts, anything. So I'm happy to do an intentional introduction. I am Amber Tam. I am 25 years old. I am born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, when I say that, I really mean that. My family has been in Brooklyn for four or five generations now. So I'm a true Brooklynite in essence, which is wild that I'm a gardener, farmer. Speaking of my boxes, and that's how I present them, are I am a horticulturalist, floral designer, and farmer. I always put farmer first because right now that feels the truest to my identity and lived experiences. In my heart, I don't really identify with those terms, but I do love them because it lets people know what I do off back and they can walk away understanding me. But if they want to hear more, what I really feel in my heart is I'm just a vessel for low-income Black communities to vocalize what they need. And it's my goal to meet at least one of their needs. And what I've seen in my life and what I've experienced in my own life and what I've heard of my ancestral experiences, food and nutrition is a necessity. And so I'm showing up for low-income Black communities in the realm of food, in the realm of food justice, even though I don't like to use word terms like justice, but yes, food justice. Um, I grew up in such a loving family. I have four siblings. I'm the middle child. I have two parents. My father is Black. My mom is mixed race. She's Black Cherokee by way of Cherokee slaves. And then she's Irish and Italian by way of like her grandparents coming to New York City via Ellis Island and meeting each other there and choosing each other. So my ancestry is very mixy and beautiful. And all of us are different shades of brown, which I love. I love to represent that spectrum, that underground rainbow of the earth, like the different browns of the earth. Um, growing up in Brooklyn, I really had limited access to nature. Uh, in my elementary school days, I was being jumped often for being a light-skinned Black girl because colorism is very real in the hood. Uh, I had a safety transfer to a school called the John Lennon Elementary School PS3. And my first day there, they were singing the Beatles, and I did not know the Beatles song. And I knew I was going to love it there. But I hold that school very much so accountable for my trajectory to be here today. Because on that very first day, there was a woman who was sharing about her experience over the summer, because it was the first day of school. And she was sharing that she was on her family's farm. And that was the first time I ever heard of a farm. It's also the first time I ever heard of like leafy green or spinach. She mentioned something 
And then she showed a picture of her holding these leafy greens. And that was when my quantum questioning opened up to be like, what are you talking about? I need to know about this. As I moved through school, as when I got to high school, I was rooted in, I want to work with the earth, but I had no idea how. So I claimed that I would be going to school to be a humanitarian <laughs> by way of like, okay, I'm going to go into Peace Corps and that's going to get me to the soil and to get me to be in the realm in which I hold a degree, which will make my family happy. But I want to work with soil. I got totally knocked off my rocker completely. I was a 4.0, like straight A black girl from the hood that had really good trajectory for college. But four to six months into college, I found out that my father had murdered my mom. And I was officially an adult in that moment. I was 18 and I was severely on my own. And immediately I realized that I needed income, I needed housing, and I needed food. And the only options I really had were a cruise ship and farming. And the January after my mom died, so 2015, I went to a farmer's market and asked farmers if I could apprentice with them. And that's how I ended up on my first farm. From there, I farmed across the U.S. for two and a half, three years. Then I did everything from terrible conventional farming where I was pouring Jolly Rancher Blue Liquid on kale plants and not eating anything that I grew because I knew it was poison, to regenerative farming in Hawaii, to tropical agroforestry, to cannabis, to urban farming, to chicken farming, to sheep herding. I pretty much have a big overview of what agriculture in America looks like besides wheat and corn. I haven't dabbled there in rice. Um, But I was able to get a good amount of experience and come back to New York City and provide for my community. Horticulture and floral design came up last for me. That was a realm in which I got back to New York City. I applied for a job as a pastry chef at Petey's Pie. And I want to do a special shout out for Petey's Pie. They just released a beautiful cookbook that is now on the New York Times page, now on Forbes. And I would tell everyone to go get it. It's called Pie for Everyone. I was trained as a pastry chef Mm -hmm. at Petey's Pie. And I'm so grateful to Petra, the owner, who took me under her wing and saw me because she's from a farming family. So as soon as she saw my application, she trusted me and she trained me in pastry. And she also asked me to do all horticulture and floral design for any of her new locations. And so I owe Petra so much of my success because she saw me. And from that day forward, I've been able to do floral design from her cafe and also just be able to start my business there to show people I can do horticulture, can do floral design. So that's pretty much my background. I want to just give a moment of pause for the the depth of that experience um, to this point in your life um, at age 25. And I would ask, um, first of all, the the strength of an experience that you went through with uh, your mother and father. I think based on what I have read on your website and heard you speak about in other spaces was one in which you did not only become an adult, but was one in which what you valued in life really clarified for you. And I am, I am 
making the leap in my head that it was that clarification that then led you to the farmer's market to ask farmers if you could apprentice, that that was not a random act of Amber walking down the street, seeing a farmer's market and thinking, oh, well, why not? But had immense like meaning and portent. Absolutely. I, I will say that as I saw my mother's casket lowering into the ground, that it only fully made sense for me to be working with the earth from that point forward. And on a very deeply personal note, like my mom lost her parents when she was 22 and around that age, 22 to 25 area. And then like, it's just generational in the sense of we are women who have lost our parents very young. And so in talking to my grandmother and my mother, the only way I can do that and it feels true to me is by working with the earth. And so once I read Mm. The, the Hidden Life of Trees, The Secret Life of Trees. Once I read that book and I was like, oh, trees talk to each other through roots, I realized that my fingers can conduct themselves as such in terms of communing with my mothers who are buried in the earth. So no, you're absolutely right. It definitely was not random. And when I thought about what do I actually need right now, I really needed a place to rest. And that was not given to me. And so working with plants was a way that I could secure income while resting in a sense, while processing. I recently wrote in my journal that if I'm going to continue to dance with capitalism, it will be through gardening. It will be through farming because that is my favorite dance with capitalism. There is no other dance that I will do with capitalism besides that. If I'm going to be hustling, it's going to be hustling plants to people who need nourishment. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're joined today by Amber Tam, a farmer, gardener, floral designer, and good human based in Brooklyn, New York. We'll be right back for more of her earthbound rainbow of garden life story. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Just as Todd and Carter last week see the wreaths and other natural items they're crafting this time of year as both an honor to and culmination of the year that has brought us to now, so too this conversation with Amber is such a culmination for me at Cultivating Place. I knew after speaking with her that I wanted to hold this conversation as the threshold into winter and our dreaming, rooting, growth, and intention setting for this next circle around the sun. I wanted this conversation to be in our ears as we cross into our next season with all that Amber gives voice to, embodies, imagines, and asks us to grow up into as a greater gardening and growing community. When I look back at all the gardeners and growers who have companioned us since December 21st of 2019, I am so moved by the leaders they are in the places they inhabit, by the mentoring and modeling they put out into this world every day, every cycle of the moon, of the seasons, and the sun. I know you feel this too. 
I thank you for your notes of support for the encouragement you find in these conversations and for your many donations to make this work possible. I want to share with you that we met our goal of 100 new listener supporters in the second half of 2020, and I am so grateful, I am so humbled, and I am so expanded by you all. Without your support, this labor of love would not be even close to sustainable. And so, if you didn't have a chance to contribute, and you'd like to show your support of this work you tune in for and find value in, just follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. And for those 100-plus listeners who did, thank you. Thank you. As we close in on Cultivating Place's fifth birthday in early February, the next five years look promising and vibrant with the many, many shades of rich brown soil and green, green growth that is the fullness of this collective garden life story. We're back now to our conversation with Brooklyn-based farmer, horticulturalist, floral designer, and change maker, Amber Tam. So you have this really life-changing experience. You travel around the country and you, you know, you basically get your long form education in animal husbandry, in different forms of agriculture and horticulture Mm -hmm. and community across the country. And then in Hawaii, which of Mm -hmm. course is part of the country, but very different geographically. And you ultimately come back to New York City. In those last three years, you have really, um, as you say, you you found an incredible uh, community, including Petra, to to mentor and and support you and lean into and grow your voice uh, as a floral designer, as a horticulturalist, as a businesswoman. Maybe talk about the horticultural work and the floral design work and your own ethos inside of those. I, I want to emphasize one point. The reason why I had to leave New York City and migrant farm is because, one, I couldn't find a farm mm. to call my home. So I had to keep bouncing to the next farm and the next farm and the next farm. The other point that I want to make is I would have loved to start it my farm career in New York City. But the competition of scoring an agriculturally based job in New York City is very challenging because those of us who are native and brown to New York City, we don't have the same access that gentrifiers who are white have. And so gentrifiers are coming from Ohio where they're like, oh, I've been working the cornfield since I was 11 because down the road, I was able to secure a job at a young age. And then they're coming here and they're securing all of the urban ag jobs across the board, even volunteers, even garden plots. They're securing all green space. Therefore, any of us who are native to New York and have no experience or any of us who are black and not native to New York but want experience, our access is very low. So I just wanted to emphasize that. After farming across the U.S., I I also want to bring to light that being a young black woman 
with trauma that was very fiercely in it. I definitely endured a lot of even more trauma in farming mm-hmm. across the U.S. Um, and that can come up as forms of like almost being sex trafficked. That can come up as forms of constantly being sexually harassed and almost being sexually assaulted in the fields. And that can also come across as discrimination taking place because one might think that I am from the Caribbean until I open my mouth and I don't have a Caribbean accent. Therefore, I'm going to cause trouble about what is going on on a big farm that is paying migrant workers less. So that American, that Black American identity also playing a role. So after doing that for two and a half years and never having a real home, also just having lost my parents, Coming back to New York City was a big homecoming because I had secured the knowledge to be able to execute what I wanted to do here, which is I know the communities that need help because I'm from here, but I was never able to help them because I didn't have the skill. So now I do. And so in having this welcoming, because I needed a job and Petra, owner of PD's Pie, she gave me a front of house, back of house position, which not only secured me as like, oh, I'm going to step into horticulture floor design. I was stepping into being a pastry chef, which is a realm in which I think most farmers could be very good at, especially those that have orchards or gardeners that have orchards too. It's like that is a realm in which we can actually bring joy out of having abundance. I won't say Hmm. excess, but having an abundance of things that are going bad. So I want to put that out there as a frame of reference that In the gardener, in the farmer, there are multiple identities, but for some reason, gardener and farmer take up the most. And so I was grateful to have a homecoming where I was being stretched outside of my farmer, my gardener identity, and being asked to be a pastry chef, be a horticulturist, be a floral designer. And in that was creative healing. Mm. For so long, I've worked under other farmers who are telling me what to do because I'm farm crew. I'm working in gardens where I'm helping somebody with their gardens. So I have no creative autonomy to design things the way I want to see them. But with horticulture and floral design, I'm not trained professionally in those realms. And so I was able to just go off the dome based on what I know about veg and apply it to horticulture. That was my ethos for a long time. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had people who trusted me that I would figure it out and they were absolutely 100% down for me learning as I go. And I was being paid. I wasn't being paid a lot, but it was a fair enough payment so that I can learn and I can also Mm -hmm. execute. And so that was the intrinsic beauty. But then the layers that I stepped into, like I knew that being a black farmer, a black gardener was like a thing unheard of, but to be a black horticulturalist and a black floral designer was even more foreign. But those two realms held a softness that I didn't mind being, you know, discriminated against in those spaces or being treated differently because the art of those works themselves are so different than production farming, than gardening. The urgency is less. That's my experience. It's like with ornamentals, with ornamental horticulture, I've just been able to let the plants be and know that they'll be okay. And so people will ask me like, how did you get this English ivy or this pothos to be this long? And it's like, I've done nothing to it. I planted it in something that has no drainage and it's fine. So I've learned how to let plants be and know that they're thriving through horticulture. Through floral design, I've learned how to be untraditional. 
I've learned how to execute bouquets without knowing like the proper way of making them. So very much like how I learned how to draw. Like I, I could be hyper-realistic pencil artist from time to time, but it's not through the lens of learning step-by-step how to draw someone's face, but taking it the way that I need to take it. So when I've auditioned for floral places, they definitely never accept me because I don't design in the traditional way that one is supposed to, where you put the ferns first and then you put your accent flower and then you put centerpieces and then you fill. Every time I design, it's different. So I've been able to be myself in floral design, but also know that I'm, I've opted out of the traditional floral design world by being myself. But being myself has offered me so much more opportunity in terms of I'm able to create floral arrangements for Juneteenth, which is the celebration of Black ancestors. You know, I'm able to create beautiful bouquets and wreaths for Black History Month that include cotton and have red, gold, and green. And like my my design is so much more expansive than what floral design has to offer. And so in doing that, I'm grateful. I mean, from farming to gardening to floral design to horticulture, I'm grateful to show all people you don't have to be trained. You just need someone who trusts you. You just need practice, but also like to show other Black women that our stance in this is so much more than being a part, but it's also putting off our communities with those, with those skill sets. It's interesting. Someone asked me recently about which side of the brain I'm using when I'm working in the garden. And I said something along the lines of, I think it switches based on what I'm doing. And I think you just articulated that so beautifully, like the production farmer and the skills you need to, to be farming are very different than what you just articulated as the creativity that was starting to be practiced and formed in you, um, which clearly you, you know, we all have, but you had, uh, and then put to work in the horticultural training and the floral design, which I love. And, you know, this idea that like there's a proper way to do an arrangement or there's a traditional way, like these are such limiting words and we know this. And, and thankfully, you know, one of the, one of the upsides of a crazy year is that it is asking everybody to rethink, like, what do we even mean by the right way or the traditional mm-hmm. way and how far back does that go and mm-hmm. and what tradition does that even include mm-hmm. um which is something i think has been at work much to my great happiness in the horticultural and agricultural and floral world uh by some really passionate people for a good many years and they created some fertile soil for this moment to land in uh which I think we all are benefiting from in, in some interesting ways. So you now are finding your feet both as a young farmer and a horticulturalist and a floral designer. And you know, and, and you like in, in a cellular and an intellectual way that what you want to do is expand these limitations that you faced for your communities of of care young lower income 
black and brown communities that were, you know, could face these exact same challenges, especially in that New York City environment. Mm-hmm. Talk about talk about how you are taking your experiences and, you know, through the crucible of soil, directing them to the benefit and the expansion of these places for the people that you think need it the most. I think that that started off with just representation fully. I think if you are to look at me, I think I'm a manifestation of how representation matters. I say that to say, for the first couple of years of my farm career, I knew my goal was to feed low-income people, but that officially didn't happen until today. But I knew five years ago that that was my goal. And so for, for years, I was just on Instagram sharing my personal narrative for the sake of keeping track for myself. So it was always selfish and personal first. It was always about me first. And that's the other narrative that I hold is like, when it is for you, it is for everyone. When I look at my own life, as in like the last five years, because my life before these last five or six years was completely different. When I look at what I call my life, those two narratives are are very real. The narrative of when it is for yourself, it's for everyone and representation matters. So in representation matters, you just share my narratives of being black in Hawaii or black in Wisconsin or black in Plant City, Florida. And like with the goal of plant work generally and seeing how I can fit in into a space upon arriving to it as a new, a new person to it. Black folks were feeling connected. It was rewarding for them just to see a Black woman in a garden or a Black woman with chickens or a Black woman with a durian and trying it for the first time. Those were all things that were rewarding for them that I didn't, I never thought was enough on my behalf. Like I felt like I was doing the bare minimum. And it wasn't, I didn't realize that until I was in Hawaii and I I wanted to root myself in working for food sovereignty for Hawaii, for the Hawaii islands, until I realized that I need to work on food sovereignty for my own community before I go to somebody else's community and do that. So I had to hold the narrative of, am I, as a Black woman, gentrifying Hawaii, which was super expansive. That was super expansive thought. And I really had to understand what it felt like to be an outsider in Hawaii, although I'm brown, although I'm black. And so I'm so grateful for the magical soils in the land of Pele that taught me what being a colonizer feels like, what being a white person feels like. Because they were very stoic to me. They weren't always on my team, none of that. Like they, I wanted to work for them and they were like, you need to go back to your own people, which was out of pure love. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that. Um, so upon leaving Hawaii, I knew I was headed back to New York City, but I had no idea what was yet to come. And so once I entered horticulture, floral design, like I just mentioned, that manifested in the realm of offering really beautiful bouquets for affordable prices. I mean... If you've seen any bouquets on <laughs> my Instagram, I've probably had people pay $35 or less for them. 
And people are always mind blown because really I'm just asking them to pay for the flowers. I'm not asking them to pay for my service because I know that the abundance is going to come from an ancestral realm and going to come in the form of land ownership and a house and a permanent place to stay. So I've never been concerned about being paid for service Right. And that has formed like, oh, Amber, I want you to do flowers for my baby shower. And I'm a black woman. And I'm like, well, the gift is me doing flowers. So just pay for the flowers and I'll do it. And same with horticulture, like any, you know, black owned restaurants will hit me up to inquire about having plants done in their restaurant because now it's trendy for every restaurant to look like a nursery. So that's also a way in which I align myself to support those that want access to beauty in the realm of plants, but can't afford it because it is super, super expensive. And this year in particular, this year has been absolutely mind-blowingly incredible because my last six years of my life have been terrible. Like I was working on farms for $60 an hour or like in Hawaii, I was being offered just like a yurt to live in. And like, that was my payment, but I was doing like, I was planting a food forest, like the last six years of my life have been terrible in every way, shape or form from finances to family, to body health, to mental health all across the board. But this is the first year I feel embodied and it's been my best year in terms of quote unquote career. And that really started out with me once COVID hit with me really saying that New York City needs to center itself more on food sovereignty. When I was going to farmer's markets during quarantine and seeing farmer's markets sold out of produce, I was happy. I was overjoyed that farmers were selling out of produce, but it was terrifying to think that that could happen. When going to supermarkets and seeing that things were gone and nothing was accessible, I realized that we need to have more things going on in the city so we don't have to wait on trucks to drive it in, period. Um, we need more access because there at least were so many people here. There's been a great flight of people that have just left um, because of COVID. And my first response was to call out Central Park and their great lawn and say that that needs to become a farm because it's been a great lawn for a very long time. And that tied deeply into the narrative of Central Park, formerly being known as Seneca Village, which was a Black village that Black people owned and also gave ownership to other European immigrants who also have ownership of so they could vote. And so this was a whole village. And when I say village, I don't mean like they were living together. Like, no, there were schools, there were farms, there were gardens, there were churches. This is a whole village that Central Park moved out with eminent domain which is one of the most evil colonizer ways to make things go down. But using eminent domain to get rid of not only Black community, but also these immigrants that were freshly new here and were also still being discriminated against with white supremacy, white people being discriminated against with white supremacy. Super wild. And Central Park then being formed. And so for Central Park, I called them out to say, if they made this a farm, they would be helping with like COVID prevention in every way, shape or form because Central Park had put up COVID hospitals. They put up hospital tents immediately to treat COVID 
But I was like, okay, COVID prevention in the way of leafy greens for the people and food access for the people and New York City moving towards food sovereignty in general. Because Governor Cuomo was walking around saying, you know, 2.5 million people in New York City are going to be food insecure, but I haven't seen too much to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then soil diversity for Central Park is a big thing too, where those soils have been grasses for a very long time, and I'm sure they want to be other things. I'm sure they were sprayed with all types of poisons for many years, and recently that has just stopped. But soil diversity and then the power of education to empower Native New Yorkers to know how to grow more than a quarter of an acre, because community gardens are too small. You don't know if you really want to be a farmer until you farm more than an acre. Everyone loves being a gardener, but there are some gardeners that are like, I think I want to be a farmer, and you won't know until you farm more than an acre, until you have a real production farm shift to really experience that. And so that's the other last component. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Amber Tam is a farmer, a gardener, a floral designer, and a student of the soil, based in Brooklyn, New York. We'll be right back for more of her creative, dancing, change-making, growing journey. Stay with us. So in reviewing this past year of Cultivating Place, a few conversations really stand out for me. They are placed on my heart. I am curious if there are some that stand out for you. Based on recent notes and comments from listeners, I get a feeling there are. I would love you to do me another favor of support. If you have the inclination, please tell me what voices have moved you this year here. What stories or leaders from the ground up that you heard here with me grew you the most, stayed with you? If there are specifics as to why these particular episodes moved you, I would love to hear about those specifics. As we all look toward 2021, I would love to know this. You can send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com with anything you'd like to share. Inspirations and constructive criticism, fully welcome. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for your sharing the episodes you love with me, for sharing them with one another by email, or tagging and sharing them on your social platforms. Thank you for sharing them with your friends and family, and most especially, for sharing the meaning of these with your own garden and gardening ways. My very, very warmest garden best to you in your garden for me in mine. The work we do there, the connections we make there, the joy we find there is as sacred as the season itself. Happy solstice. Together we grow better. We're back now to our conversation with Brooklyn-based farmer, horticulturalist, floral designer, and change maker, Amber Tam. As we come back, Amber shares with us her dreams of caring for land of her own for the benefit of the many. Aside from that, like I said today, through Stone Barnes and Dan Barber and our partnership, I've been able to 
receive donations and payment through Dan Barber and Stone Barnes to be able to, as a Black woman farmer from Brooklyn, grow food in Brooklyn for Brooklyn Black low-income community. And so I'm on my way to land ownership uh, in June, June 19th to be specific, because it was Juneteenth, <laughs> I had released a um, GoFundMe. And within six days, I secured 100K. And right now we're on our way to 150K. And that's all through community. When I tell you, Jennifer, I did zero, zero work. All I did was put on Instagram that I released a GoFundMe. And I've never had to post that again. And people have been giving and giving and giving and giving. And okay, in wait. giving, yes. Wait, I want you to back up there because Amber, you have done a ton of work. That post might not have taken you more than, I don't know, 30 minutes to put together and put up, but it's backed by years and years of work and voice and heart. So you did plenty of work for that funding and that pathway to land ownership. Okay, now you can keep going. Thank you. Thank you for that recognition and vocalizing that recognition. I do think that it's very true. I think for five years I had, you know, before this round of Black Lives Matter and amplifying Black Lives, Black voices, I was at like 5,000 followers and they were ready. They were ready for me to drop a GoFundMe then. Mm-hmm. But once I hopped from 5,000 to 36K, in like two months, once I dropped the the fundraiser, it really, really sounded off in a way that I couldn't even imagine. And I'm grateful to Mama Earth for guiding me in that way to wait until she said yes, to wait until she said this is the right time. And so once I did that, that went off and I really extended that GoFundMe as a way of in donating to my land, you're donating to your land. You you have a share regardless of the amount of the donation. And I think people knew that that was my truth just based off of my story and hearing the cycling that I was going through, through working for other people and just wanting community, wanting autonomy, wanting to be heard, wanting to be safe and understanding that that's what I'm going to create. Throughout my farm and gardening career, I've truly learned what to do wrong and I'm ready to rectify it. I'm ready to bring harmony and I'm ready to let go of sickness through living in harmony with Mama Earth through land ownership. But also the last coordinate of that is my ancestors once being owned as property and me having the freedom to own property, not as property, is really empowering powerful and that land being extension of that that this is your property to black people it is ours to thrive on and not just survive on right and that's a whole narrative in the south of survival on land having access to land but only surviving there are so many threads that we could follow up on here and the you know the importance of representation just cannot be overstated and in my book which published in March which is about um, extraordinary women working in the world of plants and had it been you know had I been writing it this year you would have been one of those women oh, I'm honored 
And, and this is, I think, where we all get hobbled is, is not feeling enough and not feeling like even one makes a difference. But even one, as you just have, have shown us, makes a difference in what we see and how we see it and how we feel it. And the, the hope that is bundled in that many people getting behind your dream and your land ownership is, is so, it's hopeful to me because there are so many people who know what's wrong, even if they couldn't articulate it exactly and who want to make it better. Like there are people, so many people who want to make all these things better than they have been. Absolutely. um, If I can just interrupt and say, it really does only take one. And I truly mean that in the sense of, I have no idea five generations back. I only know five generations back right now of my ancestry, but I don't know anyone in five generations back that has owned land anywhere on the globe. And so for me to be the one in my lineage, and if I'm forever for the next future five generations, if it's just me, that's okay. Because it really only takes one just to change the narrative, just for my grandchildren to say my grandmother was a landowner is enough because that'll ripple through future lineage. And not just a landowner, but a land carer. Like, yes, it is not just to own the land because that is so... That's such a small contraction of what you're talking about. You're, you are talking about loving the land and living with the land. Yes. So I would love for you to describe for listeners as visually as you can, like your hopes and dreams for either that farm on what was the Great Lawn in New York City. Let's just put it in the past tense or at least part of it in the past Mm -hmm. tense. And, and I love Central Park. I'm a big believer in green spaces in cities, but how they're used and why they're used, there's plenty of reframing to be done there. And maybe it's not that, you know, maybe, maybe the dream will be on whatever other land you decide Mm -hmm. or, or the universe brings you together with. What does that look like? What does it do? What do you grow? Who are the people you are growing there, Amber? Yeah, I'll describe both of those because they're two very different visions. Good, okay. The land in Central Park was a direct, I was directly trying to create a solution for COVID. I was directly trying to create a solution for education that people want. I mean, my volunteer list via email is 400 people in New York City that just want access to grow food. And they're waiting to have that access. And so it was a solution for that. I also think land in Central Park is me wanting the Iroquois and the Lenape people, the indigenous people of Central Park, to be there. Because they are not, I mean, the Iroquois and the Lenape were displaced so long ago, and they have no correlation to New York City, none. And when Lenape people have reached out to me to let me know that they're happy that a Black woman is asking for reclamation of Central Park, and that feels true to them, I mean, it's for them. The reclamation is for them. And it's for a conversation for Black Native New Yorkers and Lenape and Iroquois people to discuss our intricacies within each other. 
Mm. You know, by way of like, okay, then we can zoom out to like European people who ancestors might have been on Central Park land too. But that indigenous and black conversation taking place on Central Park land while we're communing with the layered cake of our ancestors, right? Lenape, Iroquois people, the abundant, but then you have the black people whose bones are being found in Central Park and across Manhattan as we speak. So we are very much so a layered cake in America, Mm -hmm. indigenous and black people. We are the underground rainbows of America. The layers of the earth itself are black and indigenous people. So that looks a lot like community coming together to grow food for each other. There's really no other agenda I'm asking for when it comes to Central Park. Everything should be free. You know, the greenhouse megasource said they would back me as long as I had the green light from Central Park. Johnny Seeds okayed it. Like we're, we're on board. I'm not asking for any money from the state or the city or Central Park. I'm just asking for pure access for the sake of the Napi and Iroquois people deciding how they want to enter this. And if they align with the farm, then we can move forward together for the sake of education, diversity, and ancestral community. For my personal landmass, that is more so feelings. I don't have direct visualization of the logistics of it because till this day, I still don't know where it is. For a while, I thought it would be New York State, but I was just in San Diego on vacation in Encinitas and I felt very connected to that land over there and like having the footprints of being able to step from the farm onto the sand into the ocean and then back on the farm. You know, being able to bring seaweed into compost sounds amazing. So I don't know, but I know that my future farm definitely has surround sound. (laughs) That's all I know is that the whole farm has surround sound and I'm able to blast Biggie Smalls at any point in the day. I definitely know that every greenhouse has disco balls in it. And I definitely got that idea from Happy Acre Farm, who I love and adore. I definitely know that there are children constantly running around this landmass. And I don't know if they're my children. I don't know whose children they are, but they're always running around eating everything. I envision (laughs) lots of people taking their time. I imagine being a production farm that takes its time. I don't know how that's possible, but that's... That's my vision. I imagine that no one will wake up feeling empty and tired, but still choosing to work with the earth, but they'll always feel fulfilled and nourished. I imagine lots of brown bodies not feeling exploited, but feeling supported. Hmm. I imagine that no one ever wears shoes and all the floors are muddy. I imagine electric diets being formed and Everything coming from the land, I would love to just have everything on the land, like a creamery, like wheat, like rice, like veg, like flowers. But yes, ultimately, I do think I'm going to end up a flower farmer. I think that's where community wants me, and I know that I respond to them, and they definitely want flowers. Is there anything you would like to add? I truly just want to emphasize that I'm not, I don't think I'm here saying anything different than what has been said 
I truly feel like I've been echoing everything Fannie Lou Hamer has been saying, mm. that Malcolm X has been saying, that Leah Penniman has been saying, mm-hmm. that Karen Washington has been saying, uh, George Washington Carver, like all of these people who are, will be ancestors like Leah Penniman, Karen Washington, but also the true ancestors like Carver. You know, I don't feel like I'm saying anything different, but I do feel like I have a mom component that other people don't. And I think, I guess it is a very rare story to share that one's father murdered their mother and they went to Mama Earth and that was the healing. And so I honor my sacred space in that story, but I really don't, I I just feel like I'm a descendant of all the greats, of Harriet Tubman, of Toni Morrison, of Maya Angelou. And that is absolutely who I do it for besides my own mother and grandmother and great-grandmother. Yeah. And just like there cannot be, um, cannot be too many farmers, there cannot be too many daughters saying these same words of power. So thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. And it's really been a, a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Amen, Sister Jennifer. I love you and I appreciate you. I honor the work that you do. Tam is a farmer, horticulturalist, floral designer, activist, and daughter, working to grow this world for the better. Join us again next week when we're joined by gardener Sayaka Lean of the Herb Farm in Southern Oregon, where she tends to a large medicinal and habitat garden for bees and birds and bounty. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported at CultivatingPlace.com. Thank you for finding value here, for listening in every week, and if you can, and if you have, for supporting the program by following the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at CultivatingPlace.com. As we look towards the end of this year and the beginning of our next circle around the sun, I am so grateful to be here with you. Also on the website this week, look for many photos from Amber Tam's garden work in community and solidarity. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, until next Circle Around the Sun, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.